Daniel 9, 1-27 In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, Lord, has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, you have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous act, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, 
Then the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then, after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The Word of the Lord. Living God, we thank you for this word of yours passed down to us for so many centuries through faithful scribes and mostly because of your faithfulness. Thank you for revealing yourself to Daniel for speaking into his situation. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way that we see life-giving words and truth and good news in this passage so many centuries later. Would you open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have to say today? Amen. It is hard to believe that it is already Christ the King Sunday. And for as weird and difficult as 2020 has been, in some ways the time has passed really quickly in, in some strange way. With Advent beginning next Sunday, this will be our final sermon in our series, Flourishing in Exile, our, our walk through the book of Daniel. Each chapter in Daniel has been made up of unique details and complexities, sometimes even different languages as we you know, started the book and it was in Hebrew and then it switches to Aramaic. And now in this section, it's back to Hebrew again. We've seen different genres all within this one book from a historical narrative to court contest to apocalyptic and even a prayer here in chapter nine that has resonance to parts of the Psalms. But through all this diversity, each chapter has also included this one through line, and it's this, that despite the external circumstances, social, political, religious, despite all that's been going on in the world of Daniel, we've heard time and time again that the sovereign God is in control of it all. And chapter 9 is no different. Yes, it's ancient, and yes, its details and its way of thinking are are solely foreign to us in our current context. But its truth is timeless, and it has meaningful good news to offer us in our present situation today. So let's dig in and begin with the setting. The year that this is happening in Daniel chapter 9 is 539 BC, and the Persian Empire has just defeated the Babylonians, and now Darius the, the Mede, who is 
probably the that's probably the throne name for Cyrus. He now sits on the throne of Babylon. He is the third king and part of the second empire that Daniel has served in his 66-year career as a Jewish exile serving in the royal court. 539 is also an important year in the history of Israel, not only because they were uh, in exile under a new emperor, but because this was the year that God started to fulfill his promise to punish Babylon. And let me explain that a little bit more. You may recall that Daniel and a group of young, talented Jews were taken from Israel and made to serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, right? But they weren't the only ones who went into exile. Thousands and thousands of exiles were taken from Israel, and most of them never set foot in the palace like Daniel did. But they were integrated into the Babylonian culture and society. Well, almost 10 years into their captivity, in the year 597 BC, the prophet Jeremiah, who was not taken into exile, received a revelation from God. And he wrote it down, and then he sent it to the Jews who were in Babylonian exile. At 52 chapters long, I am not going to even try to summarize Jeremiah for us right now, but I will mention two important details that impact Daniel 9. First, Jeremiah confirms that God has allowed Babylon to conquer Israel and to desecrate his own temple because Israel had completely uh, had repeatedly broken the covenant that they made with God. So just in case there was any doubt as to why they were suffering in exile, it wasn't because Babylon was too powerful a nation or because their gods and goddesses were more powerful than, than Yahweh. It was because God respected the wishes of Israel who had abandoned him and, and rebelled against him. And so he just said, okay, I'll, I'll leave you alone. Now, there is a strange comfort in that. There is an order to the universe. The, the exile uh, of Israel to Babylon wasn't random, and it wasn't a function of a superior race or a superior religion. It was a function of God being faithful to the agreement that he made with them. But the second important feature of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles is that God would put a limit to the exile. You know, he may have allowed Babylon to conquer Israel, but he would hold them responsible for their wickedness and their oppressive ways. Now, instead of me just trying to relay what Jeremiah meant, I'm just going to read what Jeremiah wrote. So this is from Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. And he writes, This whole land, speaking of Israel, will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then it will be when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. And then again in Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 10 and following. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years has been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plan, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And so Daniel has this prophecy in mind, and he's wondering, could God's word be coming to pass even now in 539 BC? Granted, it was only 66 years since the exile, not 70 years. But again, we are dealing with symbolic numbers, not concrete figures. So like 70 is made up of 
7, which is uh, the number of perfection, and 10, which is the number of completeness. So 70 years, it's more of a promise that there is a time limit on the exile and less of a date for when that time will come. Now, we've talked about numbers a lot in the past few weeks, and there is some compelling biblical evidence that I won't go into here for reading the number 70 as a symbol. But if you're curious, you could hit me up in the Q&A later on after the service, uh, and I'll try and lay it out for you um, from biblical evidence. But at this moment, what I want to do is pause and sum up what we know so far. We know this, that Daniel was taken from his family and from his home and from his language and culture and from the land of his people. And he was marched for hundreds of miles from Israel to Babylon. And when he got there, he was try forcefully assimilated, like he was given a new name, a Babylonian name. He was taught new customs. He was forced to learn a new language and trained in practices that would have been like totally taboo had they been practiced in Israel. But through it all, God caused Daniel to prosper. And even as an exile, he was serving in the palace courts. And he had the inner strength, the, the spirit to, to stand up to some of these sovereign leaders who could have just killed him with the command. He faced a conspiracy of jealous peers. He endured a pit of lions. He served three different foreign kings. And all through it, he stayed faithful to God. And he stayed faithful to his people. And he continued to love his homeland, all while seeking the, the blessing and the welfare of his captives in his captive land. Now, in chapter 9, he's in his late 70s or early 80s, and he's too old to go back. But he knows that there's young people that are wanting to go back to Israel and that they still haven't repented or truly changed their ways. And so Daniel prays. Now, just pause for a minute. Here we are in the twilight of 2020 with the state of our world not looking much better than it did eight months ago. What can we learn from Daniel the man and from Daniel the book that would encourage us in this present moment? Well, as it turns out, we can learn quite a bit. You know, when grief and suffering and insecurity come upon us, it is easy to get disoriented and overwhelmed. And in those moments, it feels like there is no way out, no good solution, no way to move forward. And thankfully, Daniel 9 gives us a sort of roadmap, or at least an outline, that can set us in the right direction. And the first thing that Daniel does is he turns to God. Daniel seeks God over and over and over again. He seeks God when he's confused, and when he's in trouble, and when he's joyful, and when he's hopeful. Daniel has a relationship with God that is big enough to include the whole gamut of human emotions. And I've got to point out the obvious that if you are enduring Zoom church right now, or maybe you're listening to this sermon later on in the week on a podcast or something, you are seeking God. You are turning to the source of life. Don't discount that. That's what we're doing here. In this chapter, we see Daniel seek the Lord in two specific ways. The first way he seeks God is through the scriptures. We know that Daniel has been reading and meditating on the scroll of Jeremiah. Daniel isn't taking his primary cues about uh, what's going on in the world. He's not taking his cues from nature, and he's not taking his cues from, from his culture. 
He isn't trying to discern the times by merely examining his current circumstances. I mean, what a disaster that would be. Instead, Daniel seeks the perspective of God who sees past our limited view. He, he seeks the wisdom of God who has the vantage point of seeing all that has come and knows all that he plans to do. He seeks the word of the Lord who has proven himself faithful and he banks on the fact that God will speak to him through his written word. Sure enough, Daniel finds comfort in the promise that God has set a time to end the exile and to bring judgment to Babylon. And Daniel's wonder, Daniel wonders if he is living in the moment that this might beginning, be beginning to happen. So he seeks the word of God. And I realize that for those of you who have had negative experiences with churches or church leaders who kind of push personal reading of Scripture as a, as a sort of duty that good Christians do, I, I realize that you may have an allergic reaction to what I am saying. But I pray you can hear me, that God speaks through his word. And if you want to know him, and if you want to learn to see outside of your own perspective and to to ingest God's perspective, I encourage you to participate in the gift of regularly meeting God in the scriptures. And I'm just going to leave that suggestion there for you and trust that the Spirit will prompt you when you're ready. I am your cheerleader, not your taskmaster. I just think the Word of God is amazing and I want you to participate in what God is doing. So, Daniel seeks God through the scriptures, but then he turns that into a prayer, which is the second way he seeks God. See, in Jeremiah, he perceives that maybe he's witnessing the fulfillment of the time of exile. But he also knows from Jeremiah that salvation isn't automatic, that God's rescue is not just like a time he has set on a date that will just go into effect, right? It's relational. It requires the people uh, to turn to God. And so Daniel turns to God on their behalf, and he does it in prayer. And it's a long prayer here in Daniel 9, and I'm not going to break down every verse, but I'm going to point out the main themes and the elements of that prayer because I think that they apply to us even today. The first thing that Daniel does before he prays is he prepares to pray. And the passage tells us that he fasts and that he wears sackcloth, this kind of itchy fabric that's supposed to make you uncomfortable. These practices in the Bible are associated with repentance and with commitment. Now, fasting isn't something that we do to get God's attention or to make him listen to us. Instead, fasting is something that helps you and I focus. Over the years, I've found that just periodic fasting, even for a day, helps me to get better in touch with the world around me, and it helps me to be more attentive of my utter desperate need for God and helps me to be attentive to his voice. So in the text, Daniel prepares himself for prayer. And as for the prayer itself, he begins with an address. The, the English scripture says, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, my God. And that's translated, O Yahweh, my God. Daniel addresses God with his personal name. This is not an, uh, some distant 
uninterested pagan type God who must be coerced or, or bribed in order to pay attention. This is the God who revealed his personal name to Israel and invites his people to seek him in their times of joy and in their times of trouble. Think of how blessed you and I are to be able to address God through Jesus directly. Daniel knows only of, of Yahweh, but, he, uh, but we know the triune God who has adopted us into his family. It makes me think, and I'll just ask you the question, how do you address God when you pray? Is it a distant relationship or is it an intimate relationship? Okay, so Daniel has this address. He addresses Yahweh with his personal name. And then he moves to the second part of his prayer, which is the confession of his sin. But it's not just his sin. It's the sin of all his people. What a powerful reminder to us who live in such an individualistic culture. As far as we know, Daniel was a fairly righteous guy. But he doesn't go to God and say, God, you know I'm your man. You know I have been faithful. Hear my prayer. You've got to. Now, he doesn't do that at all. He's honest with his own faults and with the faults of his people. He says, we've sinned. We've acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and have not listened to the prophets. You know, Jesus picks up this sort of idea when he teaches us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. He writes, hey, for forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Jesus has us pray in the plural so that we are always including the whole church when we pray. Most recently, I found this to be helpful when thinking about uh, my relationship to, to racial tension and reconciliation. I, I may not be an active racist, but I have come to understand that I have privileges that I have inherited because of a sinful, sinful system that I just am complicit in. It's a system of people's choices. And then I come to understand that I am culpable along with a whole group of, and generations of people and that we all need forgiveness. How might this emphasis on communal confession help your personal confessions to be more robust or, or closer to the reality of the world that we live in? How might our confession on behalf of the whole church help us fulfill our role as the priesthood of believers? Part of Daniel's confession is an agreement that the exile was a just act, that it was the just consequence of Israel's repeated breaking of the covenant. So confession in confession, there's this element that we agree with God that he is right when there's punishment. He is right when um, there's a consequence to sin. But then Daniel turns to God's character. And he begins to recount the ways that God has been gracious and merciful. How he delivered Israel from Egypt. And how he gave them the covenant. And how even in exile he's promised to deliver them. When we pray, it would be helpful to dwell on God's good character. To remember, yes, of course, the things that we've learned from the Bible, like the Exodus or like Jesus uh, coming to rescue us and dying on our behalf and raising to new life. But we can also give thanks for God's beauty and character that we see in our present world, in the beauty of creation or in the sweetness of love that we share with another person or in, in the flawed but vital community that is the church. 
God is good for us. He's good to us. And finally, Daniel begins to make a request of God. He asks for mercy and deliverance. He asks for God to deliver his people and to restore Jerusalem and the temple. We are living in the midst of a global situation that we can't control. And if we're honest, we can scarcely seem to control our own impulses half the time. I'm right there with you. And so what is it that you are praying for these days when, when you're approaching God? The, the living God calls us to seek him. What is it that we are seeking him about? It's a good question to ask when we're considering prayer. Now, while Daniel was praying, we read that Gabriel, the angel, came to him with God's answer. And the next section, like verses 24 through 27, it's one of the most confusing in the whole book of Daniel. Elaborate theories and convoluted ways of rendering the numbers have led to so many books and even some denominational distinctives over the years. But what I'm about to do is to focus on the good news of the passage. First of all, Daniel gets some hard news. It seems that the 70 years, whatever length of time that actually refers to, it seems that it's getting extended. That Israel has still not learned from uh, her mistakes. And therefore, even though there are going to be some high points and some bright spots, there are also going to be further destructions and hardships in the future. But this is where we have clarity that Daniel could not have. And of course, I'm referring to the time that we live in. We live after the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. See, God made a covenant, an agreement with his people after the Exodus, that if they stayed faithful, he would bless them and he would be their God and work in and through them so that they would be a blessing and a source of blessing to the entire world. Now, by ancient law, when two parties made a covenant, there's usually a conquering king and a vassal state or a weaker group of people. When the weaker group of people broke the covenant, it was the king, the king was obliged to punish them, to crush them or to exile them or to exact taxes. This is the kinds of things that ancient human kings would do to each other. But God is no human king. And when Israel kept breaking the covenant that they had made together, God did not reject them forever. He did something magnificent, something gracious. He became a human being. And as a human being, Jesus, God fulfilled Israel's call to be in perfect obedience to the Father. And also, Jesus, while being fully human, was fully God. And he took on the death that we all deserve onto himself. The consequences we deserve for breaking the covenant, they're all taken on in Jesus, fulfilled in him. Christ is the gracious king of the new covenant, a covenant based on his righteousness and his blood and his love. And this covenant includes a magnificent future in which there will be, according to verse 24, an end of our rebellion against God, an end of our sin, and an atonement or a covering up for our guilt and shame. There's going to be everlasting righteousness. That means right relatedness between us and God and us and each other. 
And then he's going to seal up. That means to bring to fulfillment all the vision and the prophecy of the Old Testament. And lastly, he's going to anoint the holy place, which we now know to be the filling of every follower of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. If you are a baptized follower of Jesus, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a walking holy place. Isn't that amazing? So our inclusion into this new family, into the new creation, into the people of God is not based on how, how well you and I keep the covenant but on how we rely on Jesus and Jesus alone. The only thing that can keep us out of this family, out of this covenant, is an unwillingness to call sin, sin. It's an arrogance and a pride and a self-sufficiency that keeps us from, uh, from access to Jesus. And it's not because Jesus blocks us like he's mad at us or something. It's because we cut him out thinking that we don't need him. So as we enter into this time of healing prayer, I encourage you to seek the God who invites us to call out to him. Maybe you have physical or emotional healing that you need prayer for. By all means, pray for those things. But maybe some of you are there, you don't have an ailment going on right now. And if you have the capacity, how might you pray for the state of the world? How might we pray for the church uh, to be forgiven for our many sins? How might we pray God's mercy over our friends and neighbors? What we're about to do in praying together is a priestly duty and a priestly privilege. In just a second, we're going to hear a song written and performed by Jennifer Thomas based on one of the Psalms. And while it's being played, I invite you into a time of prayer, followed by communion. <laughs> 